Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes and our why, the purpose of our podcast is simple, to be better educators and better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning and for everybody, regardless of role, rank or responsibility, to be willing to listen and learn. And I'm joined as ever by my good pal, Alan. How are you doing, Alan? Yeah, good. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, Really enjoyed the shows we've been doing so far and I hope our listeners have learned as much as I have. We will continue to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses, real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And they don't get realer than our guest today. And just before um, Alan introduces our guest, a reminder, we're learning and we're recording live. We really appreciate all the feedback we've been given, whether positive or otherwise. And um, you can find us on Twitter. We also search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube, Instagram, on all podcast platforms and all our works at theinfinitelearners.com as well. So please listen, learn and share as we dive deep once more. And Alan, introduce today's guest, please, pal. Yeah, looking forward to this one. There's going to be some gems of wisdom today. Matt Piper is a former professional footballer who has represented England under-21s, played for his hometown club of Leicester City before getting a big money move to Sunderland. Injury, unfortunately, ended his career after 16 operations. It took him too young and his book, Out of the Darkness from Top to Rock Bottom, is out at the end of August and it should be a great read. It talks about what happens next when things don't go right and how to overcome life's worst demons. So, Matt, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, chaps. Um, When you contacted me, I was like, what do they want me on for? You know, infinite leaders. Um, But no, honoured to be on. And um, hopefully that if the listeners can get something from the stories, that'd be brilliant. But the reason why I wrote the book was you know, just how things have gone in my life, to be honest, it was sort of by mistake because um, I did an article with 442 and as we've already spoke before we came on, I'm quite an open book myself. I I, I did this interview with a a journalist called Joe Bruin, who's actually from Leicester and he was asking me questions and I was just answering them. And uh, really openly and honestly, and it took us down a path hopefully where this interview will take us, where we, I just started talking about, you know, the good times, the high times, the low times. And he, he put it in 442 and it was one of the, he, he called me and he said, it's one of the biggest red stories that we've had this year, um, which was incredible because as you said, with the intro, I didn't play many games. I sort of got injured and left the game at 24. Um, I'm not a household name in football. Uh, but the fact that people read it and, you know, took some kind of, you know, maybe wisdom from it or, you know, from the experiences that I've been through. Um, and then Joe rang me about three months after the uh, article came out and he said, do you want to do a book? And I sort of laughed him off the phone and said, no chance that I'll never sell. And, you know, the more I thought about it and went away and sort of digested what he had said, that's when I thought it, it might be a good experience to do. And if it doesn't sell many books, if it helps a couple of people, or you know, there's some entertaining stories in there as well, but if it can help people, because ever since football finished, basically that's what my life's been about, trying to help you know, the next generation or youngsters or, or my own kids you know, try, and, try and progress and, and take a step forward in life. So. So that's sort of how the book came about. um, If anything, if the the, the little sections you put on Twitter so far, if anything, if they're anything to go by, I'm sure it will help people. It's entertaining as well. Um, Fill in our listeners, Matty, and and just tell us a little bit about your career and why that had to finish at 24. Yeah, so I had, well, I've got to say, I've got to be honest, I think I've lost count of the amount of knee injuries that I had. I think... It's, it's between 16 and 20 uh, knee operations, um, three hernia operations, two ankle operations. Uh, and my nickname at Sunderland was Mr. Glass, um, <laughs> which, which was, it was funny at the time. And, you know, I'm sort of a very self-deprecating person. I always have been. And, and I used that skill a lot in them times. You know, the gaffer comes in, Mick McCarthy. Perhaps if you were a horse, you'd be shot by now. 
you know, <laughs> you know, he'd say things like that. And at the time you just laugh it off and you have the joke or you start saying the joke before anyone else says it. But obviously it hurt me a lot in my mind. You know, looking back now, the book was a very good um, way to look back at, at what's gone previously in the past and try and, you know, come to terms with what's happened and sort of deal with it. It was a cathartic experience doing the book. And, um, but yeah, so 16, 17 knee operations and leaving the game at 24 for something that you, you dedicated you, your whole life to and, and really striving to, to get to a point um, which was always Premier League football and see myself on match of the day. It was as simple as that. You know, the, the purpose from when I was eight years old was to be on match of the day and see myself on a Saturday, Saturday evening on match of the day. So when that all finishes at 24, it, it's a huge moment. But at that particular time, I was, my first thought, and this is in the book, and it, it, it's quite interesting to me, was, thank God that's all over. Oh. Um, which, which seems weird because you, you're trying your hardest to get to a particular point. You get there. Um, but I think it was the three or four years of continuous knee injuries and setbacks that sort of, you know, there's one quote in the book that Joe, Joe Bruin wrote the book, but there's one quote in it that I actually wrote and sent to him and he's put it in. And it was my, my mind was injured a lot more than, than my, than my body was. Um, and that's true. And, so I left the game at 24, but I actually felt at that time, I felt relief. Right. So to put, put it into context for us, Matty, and I know you started at Leicester as a really young lad and, and had what, 10, 11 years there before a big move to Sunderland. Um, and, and was it four or five years at Sunderland? Tell us about the, what happened around that time where you, you had to decide between you know, trying to persevere and carry on or, or finishing and retiring really early. Put that into context for us and tell us the feelings that you had there. Yeah, so it, it was difficult because I was sort of... One thing that came out in the book as well that, uh, that a lot of people have said, uh, you shouldn't talk about that because you don't want to take away from the football career that you had. Even though it was only short, you know, you, li you live certain people's dreams. And one of, the, one of the things was, and I think it was because that I was trying to continuously get back to fitness to play football but I didn't have my longest run of games was 13 games um, so I didn't build up any kind of um, confidence or belief in my own ability after that first 13 games so I struggled very very badly with you know confidence um you know, that self-confidence that you need to go out and perform at that level. So I get back in the, the first team for two or three games and then I get injured again and then I'm out. So you, you, you're never really building that momentum to feel you belong at that level. Um, even though I had had the big move by then, this was at a time at Sunderland when I first got there. So that's probably what feeds into the relief that came at 24 as well, where I thought, thank God that's all over because it was literally petrifying nerves before you go out and take the field um, in the Premier League. And that's just, I feel, because I couldn't build up that, that momentum um, moving forward. How did, how did you handle those nerves, Matty? Was there any way that you, you, you tried to develop that confidence? How did you cope with it? How did you allow yourself to walk out when you were petrified? Yeah, it, I mean, you look back now and you think, wow, you must have had, you must have drawn some courage from somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that um, time. You know, the only thing that I, that I think back about that time is that when, when I was out, as soon as the whistle went, they, the, that, that, um, the nerves and, and the, those feelings just leave your body. You just get on with the job in hand. And I try and use that now moving forward in my life. So... Now I work on the radio or I go on national radio stations and I am actually very nervous before I go and do it. 
Um, but the thought of, so you're sort of projecting, I try and project to the future and think, well, as soon as they ask me the first question and I'm on national radio or I'm doing the radio, those nerves will disappear like they did when I was a footballer. So I try and use that now moving forward. So anytime I get nervous or, you know, the easiest thing to do, and it happens to kids a lot, the easiest things to do is when you get nervous or you get an uncomfortable feeling uh, within yourself is, is just stop what you're doing. Right, I'm not doing it. Uh, you know, the national radio stations ring you up. Will you come on and talk about your book? No, I don't want to do it and just leave it there. But, you know, one thing that I did say when I came through all my problems after football, I said, I'm not going to say no due to the nerves ever again in my life. Yeah. Um, and that's really helped me in moving forward and doing some of the stuff that I do now. Yeah. I, it's, it's synonymous, Matty, with something that, that some of our listeners talk about is, is, is imposter syndrome. And we, we've all suffered from it. And it's that, that feeling that you're not really supposed to be there. And it's like that Man City mm. song, we're not really here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. it, it's the old Richard Branson as well. If you've got an opportunity, you don't feel you're going, you're good enough for it. You just go for it anyway and see what happens. And, and I love that attitude yeah. that you just give it a go. There must've been points, Matt, where, where you actually got, some really positive experience from it. So to take us back to being a kid and then feelings of playing football for fun and not having the pressure and, and your childhood, you've, you obviously got a close relationship with your dad just listening to your last podcast. So, so take us back and what it was like when it was good. Yeah, well, it was good when I first got into the first team at Leicester. Um, and one thing that I've never really been able to analyse is when I got into the first team at Leicester, they were in the relegation zone. The, they were getting booed off the pitch every week, the players that were playing at that particular time. Um, we had some signings like Junior Lewis that had come from, from lower levels. Um, Adi Akibai was really struggling. Trevor Benjamin. There was sort of... And then you had the superstars like the Muzzy Izzets, the Robbie Savages, but the team was really struggling. And I felt that was a great time to go in to the first team which sounds crazy really but when a team is struggling because I thought well people are going to see me as a young player and sort of give you a little more of a chance because you're not coming into a, a team that's flying and playing really well at the time and I think going back to when I first started playing football that is what helped me at that point as well. Because I always played in teams that were a little older than me or, or playing up because I was fast. I was quite strong for a young lad. Um, so when I did get into teams, you sort of had that feeling of, well, if I play bad or I don't do very well, it doesn't matter because I'm younger than these guys or, or these guys are paid. I played in the Premier League on £350 a week. <laughs> so there were guys in the in the first team that were on 30 grand a week that were getting booed off the pitch and not playing well so if I do have a, a bad game or a bad experience the fans will look at me uh, and people will look at me and think but he's only a kid and he's on 350 pound a week that sort of dispelled all those those nerves those fears and it just let me go out and perform uh, and sort of have that freedom Okay. So, you, so you felt like there were no pressure on you because there was no expectation. That's exactly that's exactly it. I think when the when the expectation went up, as in the, the move to Sunderland, the three point five million, the fifteen grand a week, then all of a sudden there's a, there's more expectation, and then it is how do you deal with that? Then having dealt with playing in the Premier League or, or all those games that have come before at Leicester City when there was no expectation. Uh, and that was, that was really difficult for me at that time. Okay. The, talk to us a bit more about your relationship with your dad. I, I love that story of when you're signing for Sunderland and your dad's going up in his suit, all, all, all suited and booted. <laughs> and he's trying to do the deal for you and, and then you have to call the agent in. What, what was it like? What, what, what was that relationship with your dad like growing up? It was, it was a real difficult one. Um, I know I talk really glowingly of him now. And, you know, in the book, this is one thing that I've had a, a huge problem with. When we was doing the book, the, the thing that I've been worried about the most is how I, um, 
sort of talk about the relationship with my dad because okay. it, it wasn't close at all growing up. I mean, we've become closer now. He's a brilliant granddad. Me and him are, are quite close now, but it wasn't a loving relationship. He, he's not very affectionate, whereas my mum was totally the opposite. Um, and growing up, obviously a West Indian household, growing up in the 80s, early 90s, you know, I've seen the belt a lot. I've seen <laughs> the back of his hand a lot. Um, so we didn't really have a close relationship. So even on, on the other podcast that you've, that you've listened to me talking about my old man growing up, it wasn't very close. And I truly believe one of my huge qualities is, is coming through adversity. It's, it's always been like that. Or when someone tells me I can't do something, it inspires me to prove that person wrong. And he, I put down becoming a professional footballer solely at his feet and not in a good way, in the way that he told me that I wasn't strong enough and I didn't have the, the mindset, the capabilities. Um, he said I had the talent to become a professional footballer, but literally from the age of 11, 12, he was telling me that you've got the talent to do it, but you, you definitely haven't got the mindset. You will never become a professional footballer um, mm. because he thought I was too soft. Yeah. Um, so it that's comes that's... out in the book that I made it to, to, to be able to point a finger. And when I scored the last goal at Filbert Street for Leicester, there's a picture of me where I'm pointing to the crowd and people think it's a loving kind of point to my dad. That's me pointing at him to let him know, don't ever tell me that I can't do something. Wow. Yeah. I absolutely sure. love that. And, and I'm, glad you've, I'm glad you've touched upon that because... I'm a parent, you're a parent. How does that, how does your relationship there with your father, how does that influence you as a father now? And I know you've got four kids and that's a challenge in itself. Yeah, I've got four kids and the youngest plays for Burton. He, he's really talented. He was at Leicester for a while and now he's gone to Burton. He's only 11. Um, but I'm sort of totally the opposite to my dad. But I've been thinking about this recently that there's lots of these young players, and I've got a big problem with this in football. There's lots of these young players that sort of do something on the pitch and then look for admiration or praise or, or, or if they feel they've done something wrong, they look for the parent while they're on the pitch in the middle of the game. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's right. A lot of the parents at Burton say to me, I can't believe you, ever, you don't ever say anything onto the pitch or... When Cairo does something good, obviously he gets a thumbs up from me and a, and a praise, but he, he doesn't get any feedback while he's in the game. And my dad used to do that constantly. You know, if I'd made a mistake, I used to look over and he used to be going mad or telling me to do something or shouting onto the pitch. And a lot of coaches do that as well. And I don't, I don't think that's right. I, I give him feedback when we're, when we're on the way home in the car, but I'm... I think I'm really supportive. I don't try and be in his head like my dad was in my head. Um, but as I say, the sole reason I think I made it as a footballer was because my dad was in my head and I had the attitude to prove him wrong. So I always think, you know, I'm not being too soft, yeah. too nice with, with Cairo. Um, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? It's a really interesting balance of, of not wanting to go too harsh and, and not wanting to go too easy. I just want to explore, maybe link that back to something you said earlier about, you know, often when you were playing football, you talked about your mind being injured. Could there, could there or, or, or is there a link that you reflected on between that and, and that drive to try and prove something to somebody else that, that maybe you'd already done, you'd done that, and what was your motivation that was left? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, it's something that I've been working on a lot and, and reading about and you know, I had a definite purpose uh, growing up since the age of seven, eight years old. And, and that kept me on a pathway to become a professional footballer. And once it was done, there was no real drive or purpose there anymore. I wasn't one of these guys. I was initially, but I wasn't one of these guys that once I had made it, stay behind on the training field and practice my crossing, my passing. I'd, I'd be off into town buying clothes, doing other things, uh, like a lot of footballers do. But, you know, you look at someone like a David Beckham that constantly works on his game, and he had that drive, he had the purpose, I would imagine, 
the same as Ronaldo, I've got a lot of respect for these guys with this mindset, that is to become the best player in the world. And, and what I've noticed and what I, I talk about now, especially with my academy players, we can't just set one goal or one purpose. It has to continuously keep evolving. And if you reach that purpose, you've got to set a new one and so on and so forth. And I never did that. Um, so once I had become that professional footballer, there was no purpose left. And the reason why I've looked at this, and it's a great point that you bring up, the reason why I've looked at this is because after football, when things went terribly wrong, it was because I had no purpose anymore to keep me on a pathway, to keep me focused, to keep me moving forward. Um, so for me, in my value system now, that becomes number one. It's not family. It's not family. It's not friendships. It's not relationships. Number one for me is purpose and advancement. Because if that is lost in my life, everything else will crumble because I've been through that circumstance before. And I lost things like friendships, family members that, that sort of disowned me because that's a, I was in such a terrible place. And I put it solely down to not having no purpose. Oh. That's uh, that's super powerful. See, if we were looking at your your core values, Matt, you've talked there about purpose, advancement. Is there any others that you have in there to throw into it as well? Yeah, and and, and most of my, you know, growing up, I've always been, you know, I've got a wonderful mom, and and my dad, we did have problems at times, but he's got, you know, his values of, you know, um, manners, honesty. That's all in there with him. So. And I lost all that when I went through my difficult times. But, you know, purpose, advancement, progress is my number one. Because if I haven't got that goal to move me forward and keep me on a pathway and keep me focused, everything else sort of disappears yeah. and goes horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, loyalty is a big one for me. Um, honesty. Uh, family, obviously, but family comes lower on the list just because if my, what I call my more important values, uh, if they're not there, family will always struggle. Yeah. So if I haven't got my purpose set up in life, I know my life can unravel very quickly. And when it does, family and, and friendships and relationships are going to suffer. That's, um, um, and health that's is it, a big you, one on my one. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit of when that did unravel a little bit? Where, where that purpose maybe was lacking and, and where it was your family that took the brunt of it or your friends. I'm presuming that's maybe as your career started to come to an end. Yeah, so towards the end of the career, I started, you know, one thing that came up that I forgot about, but it was in my medical notes um, that I had, a, I, was, I was swimming one day, I got into the, the training ground early and I had a panic attack in the pool at 20... 23 years old, a panic attack. And I nearly drowned because I was the only one in there. Uh, every time I was injured, I was super dedicated to getting back to fitness. Uh, there was no one more dedicated than me, you know, looking after myself well, doing everything the physios asked, asked of me. And I was swimming in the pool one morning and I had a panic attack. The first one I ever had in my life, but unfortunately it wasn't going to be the last one. And, um, you know, the, the, the physios were, were talking about it and I could see it was sort of the first time where people are like sort of raising eyebrows, like, what's wrong with this kid? What, you know, what's going on with him? And, you know, that was the, the first point where I started to think a little more about my mental health. Um, I didn't really know what mental health was then. I'd heard of depression and that was, that was probably it. Um, but then when the, the, the career finished not so long after that. Um, as I say, I had the, this feeling of relief. Thank God it's all over. And three days after I finished as a professional footballer with bad knees, hernias, bad ankles, I went on a snowboarding trip to Chamonix with um, my brother and all my friends. Um, and it was, the, it was the best feeling and such a big relief. You know, sitting on the top of the Alps, um, lots of people saying you're crazy going on the snowboarding holiday, but it was something that I needed. It gave me that release. Obviously, when you're a footballer, you can't do do things like that. I was way with my friends, and then for two years, I was fine. 
I was really good. I was, I had money in the bank. Um, I was young and I had this strong belief that I would go on to something else and be a success in something else. And then it comes back to purpose when there was no idea of what I wanted to do after football that's when it all started to unravel and the drinking became, you know, I used to go out and drink on a Saturday night with my mates that turned into Saturdays and Sundays and very quickly within the space of probably two months that became drinking every day until it was two liters of whiskey a day at times. Um, and then life, you know, fell out with my missus. She left, she wasn't letting me see the kids obviously because I was drunk um all the time and i i used to do crazy things i i used to i had a boxer dog called kai and um me and kai used to just i used to have parties in my own living room just dancing around getting drunk every day a bottle of whiskey with kai there um and life became the purpose in life at that point was to obliterate myself with drink and for some reason watch the jeremy kyle show <laughs> that was definitely rock bottle <laughs> forget forget the whiskey it's a jeremy kyle watching what was what was the the seminal moment matty the, the moment where you thought hang on a minute i need i need that purpose you recognized it you'd had enough and, and you needed to change things probably when i went into rehab um, you know, I did a lot of learning and reflecting in rehab and it was the first time for 18 months. So when I went on the drinking spree, I did it for between a year and 18 months, sort of on and off. I sort of, I did it fully for about nine, 10 months. And then I started trying to, right, I need to sort this out because I was losing family members. My mum was literally around my ass crying every day. Um, I was hiding drinks around the house. I was I was sort of seeing the kids on and off, but only when my, my ex was there and or my mum was there or another family member had to be with me to see my own kids. And yet things like that didn't stop me drinking. Um, it was, it got, I mean, I say Jerry McCarr was the lowest point. The lowest point was, you know, in hospital with, with two doctors standing over me. And they were, argue, they were arguing with my mum. One thought I should be sectioned. The other one was saying, I don't think he should be sectioned. He's just, he used to be a professional footballer and it's all come to an end with injuries. And my mum was agreeing with this doctor. And, you know, it's a, big, it's a big talking point in the book because at that point, I'm sort of drifting in and out of consciousness. And the reason why the one doctor wanted to section me is because I took about 50 to 60 cocktail of pills and washed it down with, with whiskey. Um, and I live right near a graveyard and I sort of walked up and I was very close to my mum's dad growing up, my granddad. And I laid on his grave. I left my phone at home. I left all my personal belongings at home and I laid on his grave. So, and still to this moment, I, because I was drunk, I don't know whether I had a, a thought to end my life that day by taking all these pills. I took, you know, paracetamol, cocodamol, Valium, sleeping tablets. It was a whole cocktail, putting them in my mouth like Smarties and just washing it down with whiskey. And then I started to get the stomach cramps and then, the, you know, my mind was sort of drifting all over the place in that consciousness and, literally walked through the back garden into the graveyard and laid on his grave, my granddad's grave. And um, my mum come round as she was doing every day to check up on me. She didn't find me. She found my phone at home and everything. But whether it's that intuition of a mother or whether she just worked it out, she, she went to my granddad's grave. She knew how close I was to him. She had no clue that I would have been there. And she found me. She put me in the car and she took me to hospital. Um, so the next thing I know, I'm sort of drifting in and out of consciousness. And these two doctors are arguing about being sectioned. And that was sort of the point when I came out of hospital and my mum was fight. I could see the fight in my mum not wanting me to be sectioned. She, she talks about it in the book that that was a, it. She felt like it was a big moment because 
if I had been sectioned at that point, she thought it could have, it, it could have, you know, been detrimental to me in a way that, that that's on my, you know, medical records. And, you know, I, I sort of had gone down that route. Um, so she stayed out. And from that point onwards, it didn't happen immediately after that, but I started to, you know, think about the idea with, with, with talking to my mom and, and people that were still talking to me and close to me that maybe it was time to go into rehab and try and try and sort yourself out. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's I'm blown away by that, Matt, to be quite honest, absolutely blown away. You talk about your mum there, your mum's obviously inspiration to you. I'm just thinking about the people who don't have a mum like you've got that would choose another mm. pathway than what you've done. So that, the next step then, how did you get help? What, what, what happened and, and who were the people that got you back on the right path? So it was, a, it was a, an ex-footballer called Tony Adams. Yeah. You, you obviously yeah, know, know Tony him. Adams. He's got, yeah. a, he's got a charity uh, called Sporting Chance. And my mum sort of got in touch with them. And, you know, you have to be 24 hours clean and sober when you go down there down towards Southampton way in on a Champneys resort, but it's a little cottage in the middle of the woods. Beautiful, beautiful place. And I went down there, but I was drunk. My mum my took me down. I went down, I was drunk. And um, they said, listen, we really want to help you, but you've got to want it yourself. You can't, you know, it can't be your mum that wants it for you. You've got to have that, you know, same belief that your mum's got for, to get help. Um, so I stayed in the Champneys resort for a night, didn't drink, went back the next morning and literally that place really helped me, you know, change my life. Some of the things that they, they spoke about, some of the actions and the, the things that we did inside Sporting Chance, as in, you know, one of them seems really weird, but it, it was huge for me. It was um, horse, it's called Tranquil Therapy with horses, so equine therapy. So you sort of, they let you, they give you a horse to look after um, while you're down there. And you have to look after that horse, you know, brush it, look after it, take it for walks. And it seems crazy now, but all these horses were abused. Uh, and my horse that I got was shipped over from Portugal. And he was, he, you know, he was, he had all these scars all over his body. His name was Maron. He had all these scars all over his body. He was like missing half an ear, lash marks all over his back where he'd been beaten and abused. And that, for me, looking after that horse, because when you first go up to that horse, it just sprints off. And it's about trying to build that relationship with, with, with an abused animal. Um, and that horse helped me so much. With, with with you know my my recovery um and we spoke about so many things in that it was really open and honest you have you have group chats where you're talking about some of the most shocking things that human beings have ever spoken about you know things that you've done while you've been drunk and you've made terrible mistakes and you've hurt a lot of different people and talking through that process um was really helpful to me and then and may, maybe the 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 biggest point of my time in there that helped me turn it around i found my purpose which was coaching educating teaching the the next generation while we was in there all through my time in drinking I'm, i obviously turned my back on football you know through my times of, of the low periods I, I never watched it on tv i never played it i never talked about it um, and when I was in there, they coach you. Just fun games. It was just like football, golf, bit of training session. A guy called John Goodman, who later went on to run the Nike Academy. Um, John Goodman helped me fall in love with football again. But more importantly, to know that the rest of my life, I wanted to live coaching, educating, um, and to do around something that I knew and loved and had a passion for, which was football. Wow, and it all started with being introduced to a purpose. Was it Moron, the house's name? 
Moron, um, yes. Yeah, having a horse called Moron who gave you some purpose and also some connection there. And, and you alluded to it, didn't you, that that's continued in a strange way. That connection and purpose now manifests itself in coaching and what you're doing um, with your coaching academy and, and helping some children that have had a, a bad time of it or, or have made some mistakes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that's absolutely inspiring what you're doing. Yeah, so the, the idea was born then when I was in Sporting Chance. I thought I'd love one day. I didn't know how far in the future it would be. It turned out to be another eight years, seven years. Um, but I knew then that I would like to own my own football academy um, with an important age for me, which is 16, 17. And then so when I try and analyse it all now, throughout my time, I had a lot of empathy for, for players that had been at Leicester with me from eight years old, got been all the way through the academy system, and then it comes down to one 15-minute meeting um, when you're 16, whether you're going to get, and you're leaving school, whether you're going to get taken on as a professional footballer or not. And in, in my day, it was called a, a youth team contract. Or have you been working since you're eight years old and then your dreams are just dashed at 16, 17? And, you know, they only took three of us on that year out of 17 players. So that, and, and I remember back to that moment that I, I sat there and all these players are coming out, 16-year-olds, and they were sort of devastated. And, and I had got a three-year contract, a one-year YT and a two-year pro. And I felt a little guilty at the time, but I sort of put myself in their shoes and thought, wow, if I was here since I was eight years old and within 10 minutes, you're getting told that <laughs> your time here is over. Um, and, and what I did, I stayed in touch with a lot of them people. You, you, obviously I'm a footballer now, but I still go out at 16, 17. We start going out in town. You, you meet up with these guys that have, and nearly all of them, I think three of the other 14 that didn't get taken on, three got other clubs. That means there was another 11 lads at that age that had been at a main purpose that were trying to get to that point from seven, eight years old. And then their dreams are dashed in 10 minutes. And it was interesting to keep in touch with them and see how they navigated through that into adulthood. And a lot of them struggled. Uh, a lot of them struggled to get jobs. They didn't know whether they wanted to go to college. Some of them went on to college, lasted two months, moved on, did an apprenticeship, lasted six months, moved on. So I knew it was a really important age where huge decisions for the future are made. So that, coupled with wanting to own my own football academy, I knew that it had to be of that age. And I wanted it to be a place where people could come, find a purpose, gain an education, and advance at football. Yeah, that, that really resonates with me. I was at Sheffield United at a young age and I, had, I was one of them people that you've just talked about. I was at 16. Yeah, you, sorry, lad, you're not getting a YTS. Uh, that's how it was then. It was a YTS scheme then. Yes, uh, and, and luckily, I had a little bit in the, in the coconut and I was going on and doing A-levels, but there's so many of those guys that I was with then who were, yeah, they can only be described as they're on the doll basically, and they they, don't, they haven't done anything with their lives. And I admire what you've done there, and it's 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 absolutely phenomenal that you're providing opportunities for young people. Uh, talk to us about your website as well. What you've been doing with that? I, I love the idea of the YouTube uh, show you've got going on. Yeah, so so once I I mean I started the the MPTV. It sounds a little. <laughs> I don't know. At the start, my missus was like, what are you doing? So I got a camera in the back garden doing football coaching videos. And um, but what was important to me is a lot of people in life, especially I think, you know, people that are not high profile because I wasn't high profile anymore, but a lot of people that have sort of got standing in society, they think they protect themselves against criticism. And I knew that by starting a, a YouTube channel and a coaching channel, and if I didn't get many views or, or people weren't talking about it much, they'll think, wow, look how the mighty have fallen. He's playing in the Premier League and now he's doing YouTube videos in his back garden. But, you know, 
I had to think past that and I had to think, what are, what, what are your purposes? What are your values? What is your philosophy now in life? And it is to help others. And, and YouTube was brilliant for me because I felt that, you know, the messages that I got back, even if I, one of my videos only got 60 views, if I got two or three messages back saying, wow, thank you so much for putting up the last video you did, it's really helped me. I knew that I was spreading my message further and I was sticking to my core values of, you know, helping others um, in something that I love, they love, which is football. Um, so that's why I started that. And then I started using my own kids in it. Um, but once the academy started, obviously I had to take a step back because like many people know, making, editing videos for, for YouTube is a really time consuming um, thing. You know what? That's, that's why we don't bother editing, but that's probably why we don't get 60 views either, Matty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, the, um, the, 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 the part you brought up there was really interesting. And I know we mentioned it just before we started recording. Um, you, you, your bits in the garden are a bit bigger than football, aren't they? There are some transferable skills in there. And obviously working with young lads of 16, 17, some of them disaffected and, and frustrated with the openings that they've had or that have closed on them. What kind of real skills do you want to get across to them? What do you want to do by helping them? Is it solely football and getting better at football? Or is it a little bit bigger than that? No, you know, it's, it is a lot bigger than that. You know, the initial idea to start the academy was I started it with, with a guy called Owen Johnson. And when I went for the meet, Owen Johnson is known as one of the, you know, the best coaches in Leicester. He's, he's an elite coach, but he sort of runs his own coaching schools uh, with the idea to um, advance your child to be able to go and play at elite level. So, for instance, if I wanted my son to get into Leicester City, but he wasn't quite at that level yet, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, wasn't quite at that level yet, I would take him to Owen Johnson because he's a guy that can really step their game up and possibly get them to that level to get into an academy football. Um, and he started his business with his own son. So coaching his own son. And now his own son is the, is the captain of the under 23s at Leicester. And he's, he's been on the bench for the last four games of the, of the Premier League lockdown season. So he's got a real credible name in coaching. And I went to him and I said, listen, I'm starting this academy. I want you to come and be the coach. I knew he was a better coach than me. I, I knew the, the principles, the philosophies that I wanted to use to set up the academy, but I wanted him to coach because I wanted an elite coach. And he said he wouldn't do it unless he was 50% of the, of the business. Um, so we sort of went backwards and forwards for a month or two talking about it. And in the end, I said, OK, we're doing it. But one thing that remains at the forefront of this academy, it's not the football. It's not their education. Those two are hugely important. But the life skills program that we have to attach to this academy for these boys that we're taking on has to be of the utmost importance. Um, because I, I'm not an academic guy. I never have been, but, you know, since my troubles, I've done, I've done quite well. I've set up certain businesses and I've, I've done, I've done all right for myself after football. Um, and a lot of that is because of the personality that I have or, or I've sort of nurtured to have. And not a lot of it is because of, you know, my academic past. So I think those skills that we can use, the social skills, um, the philosophies, the purposes that we set up in life are, are just as important as, as, the, as the education that we gain. And, and that's one of my main drivers for this academy and the boys that we help. And we set it up in 2017, so it's just come to the end of the third year. And we took on, in the first year, we took on 19 boys. So they were the first boys that we ever came into contact with. Um, and has their football improved? Yes. Have they become better people? More importantly, I would argue that all 19 have. Um, and then on an education point of view, 13 of the 19 boys that we took on 
failed their GCSEs. Um, they got one or less GCSEs. Three or four of them didn't even sit their GCSEs. The end of this third year is when they leave us. Um, and and I, it could bring a tear to my eye talking about this because 11 of them boys are, are now going to university. Wow. So 11 are going to university. Four, four are... Um, I didn't see that coming, Matty. I didn't yeah. <laughs> that, That's proper 11. making a difference, Matty. That is proper making a difference. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, mate. Carry on. Well, no, and then three or four apprentices, and out of those apprentices, two have been employed by the FSD Academy. Um, wow. So we, 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 I know it's working. That's, that, that's the pleasing thing about it. And what I would put it mostly down to is the way that the academies run. You know, the environment that has been, that has been created in the academy. And I talked to Owen a lot about this and and did we create it by design or was it by accident and i just think it was being we've both got open personalities we're both like quite caring people we've got kids ourselves but i know the triggers that help me in life and and that's what we try and you know put into these boys that come into the academy it gives us a little just a, a tiny taste of maybe some of the things that you try and focus on with these life skills and some of maybe the non-negotiables that you have with these children? Well, straight away, as soon as we started, the, the, the philosophy of the academy, the core principles went up. Core principles are so important to me. And a lot of it was my own core principles that we sort of built the academy around. So that's on, you know, that's on the walls of the academy and around the building. Um, but one thing that really helped at the start, I think, and I listened to a lot of what, because I do the Leicester radio now, I listened to a lot of what Brendan Rogers talks about. Um, and even though we missed out on top four this year, I think he's an incredible guy, the way that he relates to his players. And I can see, no, I'm not a Brendan Rogers, but I can see a lot of what Brendan talks about is the kind of things that I use in the academy, you know, the one-on-one the -on -one meetings, um, house things at home, you know, let's, let's talk on a deeper level with a, a more open environment without being guarded with the students. We have, we have something called, that we started, I've put it out recently actually, and we have something called a safe environment. So if we, if we need to discuss anything, whether it's on an individual basis or as a group setting, we have something called a safe environment. And we talked about racism. So when you've got a safe environment, as soon as you walk into that space, we can talk openly and honestly and use our thought processes as honestly as we can. So you don't feel guarded to think, oh, if I say that, that might upset someone or... I'm not quite educated in this area of race. Is it all right to call Matt a half-caste guy? For instance, that's a for instance. So if that's said in that environment, no one can be upset. We discuss it. It's an open forum and so much good stuff uh, as, as came from having that open environment. But the, the one thing that was the best thing at my time at the academy so far because it led to other things. So obviously, as you know, not all the boys that come to us are, you know, inner city boys that have, most of them are single parent families. Um, dad's not been around. You know, that's the kind of boy that we, that we do get into the academy. But not all of them are like that. But the second week of the academy, so we, we're brand new. 2017 me and Owen are sort of you know putting the philosophy philosophies up the core values of, of what of what we're about and and trying to you know advance kids moving forward and I got a phone call and I was just picking up the academy minibus that I had I had gave a director's loan to the FSD so we could go and get a, a, an academy minibus and I went to pick it up in Nottingham and I got a phone call so we're two weeks in I pick up the phone and it's the head security guard of the High Cross Shopping Centre in Leicester that said, I've got one of your boys here. Um, I've got him detained for shoplifting. And I was like, oh, my word. I said, listen, I'm picking up a, an academy minibus. 
what what's the deal what what are you doing and he said well he won't give me his parents name the only person that he's given me is your name and your number so i said okay i'm coming back from nottingham now holding now come don't ring the police yet please i didn't want this boy to have a police record until i was there and i could understand what was sort of going on so i went in in and the, the security guard was a huge leicester fan and so we were talking and I was sort of like saying, well, what did he, what did he try and steal? And he, he tried to shoplift a, a, a big bag of sweets. So I was like, well, let's put it this way. I said, he said he has to have his mum and dad come down here to be able to, to leave. Otherwise we need to call the police. Um, and he, this boy was petrified, um, African boy. He said that his parents would would be obviously beat him and, and whatever. So I said, right, let's let's do it this way. Let me take him away, and I will go to to his parents, and I will explain what's happened, and then they can come in afterwards. I don't want his parents coming down here because he was so scared. And the guy eventually said, okay, let's do that. And as we walked out, we got out of the view of the security guard, and this kid was saying, you are the best speaker that I've ever heard. I can't believe you got me off that one. And I said, no, 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 no. Your parents are finding out and we're going back there now. So, and he was like, no, please, my parents can't find out. And he was almost crying, begging me. And I said, no, if you read the core values, we're not about this. We're going to speak to your parents in a calm way. We're going to relay the information and then we're going to work from, from then on to create a better environment for you and to move you on and advance you as a human being. So I took him back home. He was petrified, but I spoke to his mom and dad on a level. They were fine. They didn't beat him. We put a project together, how he was going to evolve as a, as a young human being. And now he is one of the guys going to the university. He totally turned his life around, but he put that trust in me after that moment. And, and the FSD Academy and the things that we try and do. And obviously then from word of mouth, that filters to the other boys uh, of what happened and how we dealt with the situation. And it really moved it forward. Oh, that's, that's, I, I love that, man. And it comes back to one of our taglines earlier. You didn't get taught that anywhere, did you? You've learned that. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've learned that and you've learned that through human empathy. You've learned that through the knocks that you've had in your life. That's totally learn experience nothing you've been sure any they don't cover that on coaching courses do they <laughs> no they don't i mean what i what i would say about that situation is i think that kind of um way of dealing with something it can't be done all the time i know but that kind of way of dealing with something especially with some of the certain personalities and the boys that we have come into the academy you can ignite um a learning a trust a lot more than you can if that was just the berated situation. What are you doing? Ah, uh, you're no good. That's not good enough. And, and I think a lot of the schools, I know you, you're both teachers, but I think in a lot of the schools, you know, if the te especially when I was younger, if I wasn't quite, you know, as clever as the other kids in the class and I wasn't getting what the teacher was talking about and, you know, the teacher didn't spend that time with me to try and, you know, educate me or help me in that way. So what do you do? You're going to, you're going to start messing around in class and throwing pencils at people and then get to the headmaster's office. Then you're to the headmaster's office. Then the headmaster comes out. Ah, you, you're no good. You're bad. You're staying here. You're suspended for a week. This. So you start to believe that you're not clever enough and you're not going to, you know, advance. Um, so you sort of give up. Um, so that's we, we we talk about that a lot in you know the FSD Academy and how we can move things forward. I can I can see why it's something that appeals to you so much. Everything you've talked about there comes back to the things that we mentioned earlier, doesn't it? About um, connection and about purpose. These kids want a connection. They want a purpose, and and that will help them thrive. And you know that's that's based on your me search, isn't it? The the research of you throughout your your life and your years and. And to be able to empathize with them and help them move forward is phenomenal. And it sounds like, you know, and I know from, from reading a lot about it, that the work you're doing is absolutely superb. And, 
and just that fact alone, you know, three years down the line and you, you've had such success away from football with your first cohort is, is outstanding. So, you know, a huge well done and congratulations to you with the work you're doing there, Matty. That sounds really worthwhile. No, I, and it, it, for me, it gives me a lot more than, I, than, than, you know, that it's giving these kids. Yes, we're giving them a platform, but I could take, from a selfish point of view, I could take so much from it when you're seeing these progressions and, this, and the statistics come out. And, you know, one, one of the kids now, he's working in care. He's working in care. And when you first seen him come into the academy and he's swearing and effing and blinding and you're thinking, oh, my word, we're going to have our work cut out with this boy. And now, three years later, he's working in care. And, yes, it's a lot to do with what we've, we've done and we've tried to support him. But that was already inside him. That's what I have to tell these people, these kids. That was already there. We just gave you the, you know, the tools and the platform to be able to, to find that within yourself. You can't, you can't just totally re-educate someone in three years that doesn't want that education, that doesn't want to grow, that doesn't have the capacity inside them to become that person they are now. It's there. It just needs uncovering. I, I think the same could be said for yourself, Matt, eh? Looking back on it all. <laughs> It was. It's all in there, isn't it? It's all in there. Yeah, I think. I think it is. I think it, it just needs. It needs the right environment. It needs the right teacher at the right time. It needs the right coach, the right person, um, the right situation. It needs. It just needs it at the right time. Um, and you know, I don't want to get cheesy, but people can become anything they want to become if they have the right purpose they have the drive the persistence um and we talk about that a lot as well yeah good stuff we're going to wind it down now it's been a, an absolutely inspirational 50 minutes so far uh, we have some quick fire questions just to finish so i'll do the first one uh, what book or podcast are you reading or listening to at the moment matt um i found a guy so a podcast i found a guy called jim Rohn. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. Jim, Jim Rohn was, yeah, R-O-H-N. Um, and he just, he just keeps my mind positive throughout most parts of the day. Jim Rohn, he's died now, unfortunately, but he was sort of a, a sermon back in the, you know, when Herbal Life first started. Okay. Um, but then he took, it, he took it way further than that. And you go on YouTube, you type in his name, you listen to him for three or four minutes and you will be inspired, no doubt. Okay, well, we'll have a listen to that one. Um, next one, which, which three leaders in world history would you like to go out for a meal with? They can be dead or alive, Matt. Oof. Definitely Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, without that, I've read a lot of books on him, watched a lot of film. Um... Probably Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Read a lot about him recently as well. Um, unbelievable character to do what he did at the time that he did it. Yeah, uh, and probably Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela, he's a popular one on the podcast. He yeah, is. I thought he would be. I thought he would be. But, you know, I look at his story and, you know, if he didn't have a purpose... He wouldn't have done, he wouldn't have got out of prison. He wouldn't have, you know, done the huge things that he did. That's why purpose has to be the most important. It can, it can make you do things that other people look at and think that's a miracle, but it's yep. just because you had the purpose to drive you forward. And you look at all three of them, Matt, they're, they're all got a certain mission about them as well, doing things in a peaceful way as well and an articulate manner. It's, they're, they're three very good choices. Lewis, to finish. There'd be some interesting conversations between those guys as well, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah we, we, I, I've got one, one last one for you to finish, Matty. Is, uh, we, our website is The Infinite Learners and we call our podcast Infinite Leaders Live and we know that there's a, a real close link between learning and leading and supporting and helping people. What, what does that term, infinite learning, mean to you? How do you interpret that term, infinite learning? Well, when you first came through, and asked me to come on the podcast, I, I looked at it and I thought, you know, continual uh, development. That's what I see it as. And that's, 
since my, you know, the low days, that's exactly what I feel I am. Uh, and I'm all about, um, I'm one of these guys that will try and do two things at once in a positive way. So if I'm training in the gym, I'm listening to Jim Rohn at the same time. If I'm on the bike, I'm reading a book. You, you know, if I'm in the car, I'm not just got the music. Sometimes I will, obviously. You can't continuously keep doing it. But most of the time, I'm trying to, you know, fill my mind um, with ways to move forward, not just for myself, so I can try and help others move forward as well. Yeah, coming right back round to what you said at the beginning, to have purpose and progress and, and develop. Um, Matty, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, absolutely fascinating in terms of the, the life journey that you've had and the decisions you've made, the decisions you've learned from and how you're helping other people now. So a massive thank you from us for coming on. Thanks for having me, Chats. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Inspirational. Yeah, it certainly was. Guys, please search for Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube, IGTV, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, and remember to visit theinfinitelearners.com and find us on Twitter. Until next time, thanks again, Matty, and we'll see you soon. Cheers, guys. Take care, chat. See you soon.